have on the show. Wake up and let's go to the Mindless Morning Show. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Mindless Morning Show. I'm here as always with my co-host, Dakota. And then we have a very special guest that I am just so honored to have on our show with us. The wonderful director, writer, producer, Atta Duyong. How are you doing, man? Great, thank you. Oh, man. And thank you, and thank you for pronouncing my name correct. Thank you, thank you. I tried. He was practicing quite a bit. You know what? Just to tell off a little anecdote before you start the serious questions, of course. I really knew I had made it in America after Drop That Thread when my name appeared in a baby's name book. And there was a baby's name book in 1993 that said Ata and behind brackets, director of Drop That Thread. I think that was the best review I've ever <laughs> I think I've made cool. it. All the rest is important. Oscars doesn't matter when you're in a baby name book. That is something. So yes, did, that's awesome. Did somebody name their kid after you? I, I don't think so because uh, it has uh, to be. Uh, they probably thought they, my name is Arthur, but it spells like A T E, so eight. So everybody thought this is a bit too weird. <laughs> well, it, it is actually originally it. See, I take over completely. You have nothing to say anymore, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it is originally Greek goddess. Oh, okay. Which now helps because everything is diversity, and if you're mm. not attached to diversity, you get you don't get subsidy or money in Europe anymore. So I can now say that I'm actually a woman uh, <laughs> because look at my name, no <laughs> goddess. No, it is a goddess who brings mischief among the other gods. So I'm not so sure if it's a good goddess. That's something else. Well, I mean that <laughs> that's definitely one way to look at it, and uh, yeah. For, for our listeners um, who aren't seeing this, he is in a fantastic, fantastic shirt right now. Like, I mean, you are you are popping, man. <laughs> like, what, what what are the pictures of? They're actually uh, stamps. They're, and and oh. they're not just stamps, uh, British stamps. Okay. So are, are, are you, this are you is shipping yourself somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier it's easier to travel that way yeah well, i guess so and, and so i mean if you guys haven't figured out yet you are the director writer producer of drop dead fred a uh, no that, no that's not correct i'm the director definitely but i'm not a writer and i'm not a producer oh, I okay do I, write, I do write and produce but i didn't do that on drop that thread okay okay so you are the director of drop dead fred and uh it, it's fantastic film. It is a childhood favorite that I grew up watching. Uh, it was my mother's favorite. She she had the movie. I watched it. It was great. And to this day, I still love it. And it was made in 91. And I still feel yeah. like all, all these years, actually 30 years now, uh, yeah. it, it has still held up to, to be an incredible film. And unfortunately that didn't seem to be the case when it uh first came out it's a it's a mixed blessing i mean the film was an indie film it was no for that time 
made on a low budget, which is still a reasonable amount of money if you come from the boonies as I do. But um, the film was not received critically very warmly. There were a few people who liked it, but generally it was lukewarm, to say it kindly. And there were a few like Siskel and Ebert who flat out hated the film, but they hated it enough to make it interesting again. And uh, but strangely enough, or luckily enough, the film uh, received a core base. It did commercially for an indie film very well all over the world. And and now it it's sort of like the last. It never disappeared actually, but specifically the last few years, it is a sort of resurgence and it has built up a completely new fan base, basically uh, a new generation which is of course heartwarming because let's face it, I mean, people always say films are forever. That's absolutely not true. 99% of the film or whatever percentage disappears. And those are big films, small films, all those films disappear. Films that still exist after 30 years outside like special screenings in a, in a film museum or something are very rare. So I'm, I, I, I feel extremely blessed. And, and in all fairness, I think the credit belongs to Rick Mayo more than anyone you know he's the leading actor in the film he's absolutely brilliant i think secondly the the concept of an imaginary friend who comes back to create havoc is also brilliant and then way after that i contributed something so i but i feel that i'm so lucky to be able to jump on the bandwagon of a film that still exists after 30 years yeah, yeah. I, I mean it, it's incredible work and it i for many people, it has stood the test of time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I do think that has to do with the fact this is the serious side, and after that, we're going to make fun all the time again, I hope. Uh, <laughs> that there has always been a layer in the film of uh, child uh, abuse. I don't know how else to say it. It is not obvious. It's a comedy, so nobody thinks about it. But the young child, uh, the was basically treated very badly as a, as a, as a young kid. Mm -hmm. And that's why she needed the imaginary friend. And when her life is, uh, is, is, is broken down again, when she's a young adult, the imaginary friend comes back. But so the core of the story is actually very serious. You know, yeah. the, the, the yeah. fact that, uh, she was traumatized to some degree, uh, was never talked about, was never really indicated but it's hidden there and that was something that i absolutely brought in and uh, and i think that's one of the reasons why the film stands the test of time yeah yeah overall I, has a good message yeah that's true especially uh nowadays with mental health uh, issues yeah. and all that being on the rise and things like that it, it's definitely something that i think more people should uh definitely be aware of and and, and check out the movie because it's great. And to get people to check it out, though, this is one thing that always baffled me. There used to be Papa John's commercials that would you buy a large pizza, you get a free DVD of Drop Dead Friend. <laughs> now that yeah, that that's like having uh, I, I don't know, like they threw a gem on a pile of shit like it. How, how do you give away a DVD like of that caliber with just a pizza like what, who, who's the marketing on that <laughs> I, I in all honesty i didn't know that i i had <laughs> i i had no recollection of ever hearing that but i you know 
that there is an opportunist in every director. You know, you can have a lot of principles, but one of the things almost all directors have is that they, the one thing that stands above everything is like, the more people who see my film, the better. <laughs> so if it has to go through Papa John's or uh, <laughs> a pizza concern, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. But why they did it, I, I, I have no idea. Well, you know, you're probably owed some royalties somewhere. Yeah, some some pizza royalties. <laughs> the film at that time was released by New Line, you know, who did uh, the Freddy Nightmare Elm Street films mm -hmm. and, and uh, you know, that sort of film. So maybe they, somebody there came up with a smart marketing uh, uh, gimmick. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't a Happy Meal toy. But I mean, if I if I, open a, if I open up a pizza and there's a DVD in there, I'm most likely going to watch that DVD to see what it is. <laughs> that's for that, sure. That's very valid. Yeah. All right, valid. <laughs> so, how how was it to work with Rick Rick Mail? Well, Rick was. Uh, it's always easy. He, the, the good man is dead, so nothing good, uh, nothing bad about the dead. But that is very easy in this case, you know, because there's nothing bad to say. He was a, 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 a very great man. I had to be approved by him, by the way. And, you know, the film was set up by the writers. The writers had always uh, in mind that Rick would play the lead. And because Rick wanted to do it, uh, working titles start to, started to make the film. And I was lucky enough to be hot for one month in Hollywood at that time. So I got the film off. People always ask me, if like, Oh, did you know the film that it was going to be special? Of course not. I was just a gold digger. You know, I got the film off, but then I thought, it's a shot. I'll do it. Uh, you know, if I hadn't, I had that with my Miami Vice, you know, I had never read my Miami Vice until I was in the plane uh, to Miami and I read it and I absolutely did not understand the script. <laughs> but I thought, well, it's probably good to do Miami Vice. Well, uh, the same was with Drop That Thread. Of course, I read the script and all that and I liked it. But the fact that it would become this film was a bit luck. But before the film was made, I had to fly over to the UK to be approved by Rick. And I think the fact that I was European helped, the fact that I was Dutch and therefore had a very easy attitude towards sexuality helped. There is virtually no explicit sex. There is no explicit sex in Drop That Threat. But when you talk to somebody and he make a few jokes and he had the feeling that I was not prudish, that certainly helped with Rick. And I had a, a, a similar background. Rick was very politically active in his comedy. Yeah? You know, he was very anti-Thatcher. While we were making the film, Thatcher actually uh, stepped down. And Rick said, this is a complete disaster because now I can't make jokes about her anymore. Or, you know, her whole career, he made jokes why she should disappear, but now she was gone. It was a disaster for the comedians. Uh, but politically, we were uh, on the same line. And I had made, of course, a number of films that combined comedy with, with social issues, you know, that, which I made in Holland. So he approved me, and then that, that's when it started. People very often think that he improvised a lot, and that, did that actually didn't happen. He was involved with the script, so he was involved with the writing of the jokes. And once I was involved also, I, I was involved in the fine-tuning of the script also and, uh, and the changing and all that sort of thing. But once a scene was written, 
uh, and everybody, well, in this case, Kay, uh, Rick, and I liked it. And there was not that much improvisation anymore. It was really like doing it, and he could absolutely do the same scene 10 times with the same energy and the same, in the same way. That's cool. But, but he always said, I'll follow you from here to uh, Stalingrad. You know, the expression in Europe is, I follow you from here to Tokyo. I don't, know, I don't know what that expression means, but that's the expression. But he always said, I'll follow you from here to Stalingrad. And, and he was, so he was extremely loyal. That's awesome. Sounds yeah. like a good guy. Yeah, a lot of his interviews, he just, he seems to be really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But he wasn't like, you know, these days you, you always hear a lot of people from their HD, ADHD, whatever the abbreviation uh, is in English. But he wasn't like that. I mean, when he wasn't shooting, he was relatively calm. He wasn't serious. You have some comedians that are very funny when they do their stand-up and then when they're not doing their stand-up, they're very serious and a bit boring people. That wasn't true. Rick, Rick, remained very upbeat and very involved. But the extra energy that dropped that Fred had, that wasn't something he did in real life. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if, uh, who, who would uh, originally have been casted to play Fred if it wasn't going to be Rick? I can't really give a good answer to that because I'm not aware of it and I've only known the project with Rick attached. I've heard stories that uh, Robin Williams was supposed to be approached, but I've never heard those confirmed. Uh, I, I know of a story when, when the film was finished, um, there was an enormous drive to do a sequel. But Rick was a little bit hurt by the reviews because he wasn't really, he was used to being praised enormously and he wasn't in this case. Uh, and it's a sad thing that he didn't really live long enough to see the whole uh, resurgence. Right. When, 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 when they talked about a, uh, a sequel, the American financiers also talked about a non-English actor. So they talked about uh, Jim Carrey. And the weird thing was, there was, they were very serious about it at that point. But Jim Carrey had done, I think, one, maybe, he had done a few films, but one that became very successful, that was Ace Ventura. And the studio heads at that point said, well, you know, I think he's a one-film star. So they didn't, <laughs> they didn't offer it to him. <laughs> they didn't think he could carry the film. Oh. <laughs> Which I think, I mean, I think Jim Carrey is phenomenal also. There's a... He's different than Rick is, obviously, but, but so you can see how strange it is. Uh, and apart from those names, of course, in the, the later stories about the sequels, but now I'm talking about like 15, 20 years later after the film was made, was Sir Russell Brand. Russell Brand was going to do a remake of Drop That Threat, but it never materialized. Oh, really? Wow. But, but, but when the film was the original film in the early 1990s, I've never really heard of other actors. They might have been there, but I'm not, a, I'm not, I was, I certainly wasn't involved. For me, it was always Rick because Rick had to approve me. So it wasn't the other way around or anything. Right. Well, that's, that, that's really, yeah. So are there any scenes from that movie at all that 
you you had ultimate decision over like you added or or anything in particular that wasn't originally part of any this group? yeah 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 ultimately of course when you when you are the director you have a veto right anyway i mean if if you change something on the set and the writers the writers were there because they were also co-producers you know this was a time where writers became associate or co-producers solely for the reason that they could be on the set because if you're a director and you say i don't want the writers on the set they're not allowed to be there according to directors or if you're a director and you say i don't want a co-producer on the set you can't do that um so that was the reason why many writers became and i you know i i didn't have a problem with them because i think they're great guys uh so th so that wasn't an issue at all but technically it was even when they were co-producers or whatever if i wanted to change the scene i could do it um there are a few things that i added but i never really felt apart from one scene i never really felt that they objected to it like like uh, for instance the um there was a there is a scene at towards the end where uh elizabeth finds her young self in the dreamlike kind of a scene where she unwraps her from the tape that unwrapping from the tape which i thought was very important because she frees herself was not in the script and that was a, i think a very uh important addition so that was something that that we added uh that i added i should some of the transitions from the past to the present or the other way around were not necessarily scripted like for instance at some point you see the front door of the house and it happens to be a model house and therefore you go into a model thing all these kind of things were not necessarily in the script there are a lot of these small things that are not necessarily there but that is not unusual at the one time that um uh, that the, that the writers didn't like it was when uh carrie carrie fisher uh her boat has sunk and she walks with uh, phoebe cage with elizabeth along the the water side or something and then she smokes a cigarette while she's sort of like uh, uh jogging and she says oh can you feel it you know the rush is coming that sort of thing that was all dialogue that she made up on the spot and and the and the and the, and the, the writers absolutely did not like it <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, I thought it was funny <laughs> so, oh, because Carrie is such a uh, a comical talent mm -hmm. also when she finds Fred in the chair and and she sort of strangles him while she doesn't see him and he's actually not there now she made up do I have him you know that sort of thing then yeah. slap him and that's that is all that's all Carrie so that's if awesome. there's any improvisation it is actually she who did the most of that Wow, that's, that's really yeah, that's really cool. I wouldn't have expected that. It's a cool little tip. <laughs> so you had uh, you had mentioned that you had a little hot streak for a month in Hollywood, and that's what got you for Drop Dead Fred. What was uh, what caused your little hot streak initially? Well, you know, Hollywood is a uh, it's a special place, eh? and <laughs> there's so many gold diggers like I was. You no, know, not only as director, but more than anything like actors mm -hmm. and, and the one the, the the good thing is that uh i had no problem with being homesick i loved it you know i i love the superficiality i think that i think that elmar was born for that and driving in a car 
uh, on the freeway. I thought it was fantastic. And uh, so all these things. So what I absolutely did was that I went to a lot of uh, parties. And, you know, now you wouldn't say it because I never drink alcohol. So I probably was the only one who remembered the parties later. <laughs> I didn't drink alcohol then. But uh, mm. at a certain point, it does become, if you, if you are lucky enough to land in the right crowd. And, you know, I was early 30s. So the young executives who were not really in top positions, but a goal of the young executives at that time was to know as many people as they could. And so I, I landed in a circle of people who were on the way up. And because they knew me, and then when they went up, that helped. I mean, it sounds like extremely, almost like cliche, but that's the way it worked. I don't think I could have done that when I was 50, because I would never have been in that upcoming circle anymore. Right. And, and you yeah. know, you, 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 and, and still, you know, I, I remember Nina, Nina Jacobson, who was a reader in, I don't know if it was Paramount or Disney, I think it was Disney, but a reader, which is about the lowest of the lowest. And um, she, uh, she was a reader, so she judged scripts and all that, and then usually her reader's report was thrown away because nobody ever looks at it, but it is done just in case. And, you know, she was a friend of a friend of mine and we played poker and I never played poker. So I lost everything. Uh, but but I thought, oh, yeah, I have to do like they do. So they then Nina slowly uh, became bigger, became head of uh, of the Disney uh, production unit. And then when she was fired, which was, of course, very horrible. There was a new director of uh, Disney and she was fired while she was in the delivery room with her partner who wow. had a baby at that point. But then she made the Hunger Games. You know, she became one of the biggest producers. And all those guys who were not really big producers or big executives were all in that period in the group of people I knew. And half of them, of course, you never heard of again. And that could have been the same with me. You know, you could have been... Uh, have a big mouth and and do uh, tell great jokes and you know it completely fails, or you're lucky. But it's not only luck, of course. What you get, you can get lucky once. But if it if you don't deliver, it's over. Right. But I had the luck that I f fell in with the right crowd and and that I I did a lot of things and I had no ego, you know, in the mm -hmm. sense that uh, I've made pretty big films in Holland. I've been extremely successful, which is actually not such a good thing when you're young. Uh, but the films didn't mean anything because they were local films for America. And no matter that there were a million people who saw them in the theaters here, when there were 12 million people living in Holland and a million see your film, that's quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't mean anything. But I didn't have an ego about that. You know, I just showed them the films, and if they liked them, they liked them. If they didn't, they didn't. Uh, so I, I think I was lucky of having uh, elements in my character that helped. God, is this too serious? I I will say that some, some of your films are are a little uh, definitely a lot more serious. I, I've seen some trailers to some of them. They're it looked like they got some some crazy things happening. <laughs> the, uh, it's specifically the deadly virtues: love, honor, and obey. That would yeah, yeah, yeah. look crazy. So, what is what is your like? Your if you had the choice of a genre to direct every time, what is your like main go to? Or what do you like doing the most? 
Well, if I, if you know, it's it's like uh, it's like a bit like children. Huh? You you don't really have a preference for a film, as I don't have a preference for a genre. But having said that, I think that uh, Drop That Thread and a film I made in Holland, Flight of Rainbirds, which are both comedies with a serious undertone, okay. I think that's where I'm probably best. I I uh, this is this is by the way, it's a, it's a it's a fun story. So why not tell you? When I was uh, uh, hired, uh, sorry, um, Miami Vice was the first thing I was offered in uh, in America, and it was because one of my Dutch films wa- uh, went to the producer. He got a videotape. There were no DVDs yet. We had a videotape, and the previous producer had not rewound the film, so the film had stopped at the one action scene in that movie, which lasted about two minutes. And it's a very stylish film. So the the uh, producer who decided on the new director saw that and thought, oh, this guy can uh, he can make uh, stylish action. Let's give it a try. You know, he's European. You know, uh, let's give it a shot. So I had to come to another director who then finally made the decision whether or not he did it. And he said, and he was there, and they had told me to, to to dress dapper. Now I didn't know what dressing dapper was, but when I was there, I saw he wore sandals and no socks. So if you ever need to know what dapper is, wear sandals but no socks. Well, with the Hollywood executive, and, and so he said, so what do you like? Uh, what kind of a film do you want to make? So this is a story about John, you know. Uh, and I said, well, I better can tell you what I shouldn't do. I shouldn't make a musical because you know we in Europe have no traditions in musicals. And then I wanted to say, and I said, the other thing we shouldn't do, and then he interrupted me, and uh, I wanted to say I shouldn't make science fiction because we know nothing about science fiction. But he interrupted me before I said that, and he, he shouted to his secretary, Annie, Annie, what's the new show about? And she shouted back, Aliens. <laughs> he said, Aliens. I said, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I love it. I got it. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but if I have a choice to make a psychological underpinned film that's a drama brought as a comedy would be my uh, favorite. That's really cool. I like, I like it. that. Yeah, I like it. So I, I guess the last question I would ask about Drop Dead Fred is if <laughs> <laughs> before we uh, move on to all your other work, um, if you could, what would you do differently with the film? And would you still, I know that I'm kind of tagging on two questions. Yeah. Um, see, uh, would you still make another? See, there, there is a, there's a moment where a film is itself and it's almost like whatever you did on it, the film has taken over. Eh? Uh, but I don't, but I don't want to skew your question because I think it's a valid question. I re-saw the film a little bit by coincidence about a month ago. And I found it uh, uh, difficult in the beginning. And I particularly thought, the script was thin at points. And with thin, I mean that Rick was brilliant, the scenes as such were brilliant, but the connections between the scenes and therefore the storytelling was was not as strong as it could have been. Mm. And I think the film is saved by the, by the flashbacks, which were really very good, by the uh, intention of the movie, that the fact that she is so badly treated and you start to feel for her and by the ending where you really feel that she liberates herself. But to give you a very simple example, which I think is a, is, is not strong script uh, writing, 
at a certain point, she uh, wants to go back to her husband and they know her husband is going to be at a wine tasting. And we had to get them to the wine tasting. And then, so Rick makes a joke about him. She sits, he sits with her in the room and she looks very sad. And she says, oh, you know, has, doesn't have a husband, doesn't have this, da, da, da. Makes a joke, falls on a little uh, sofa, uh, foot chair or something and finds a poster of the wine tasting. And says, oh, what's that? Oh, the wine tasting. Yeah, that's the wine tasting of, of uh, my husband. And, and he's going to be there tonight. Oh, let's go there. That is, that is not strong script writing. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like you could put a title card there. Now we go to the wine tasting. <laughs> <laughs> Sign wine, wine tasting this way. <laughs> wine tasting this way. Like, that would have been funnier. <laughs> so there's a, a few of these moments. Also, the sinking of the houseboat is a little bit... It's not, it didn't have the money to make it look good, and it doesn't really look good. <laughs> And uh, it's a bit of a distraction. I suppose we thought, oh, you know, it's great, a houseboat that sinks. But I, I, I don't think that it's good enough, to be honest. And, and it is story-wise not good enough. It's a distraction of the real story. So there's elements in the story that I think that could have been better. But I'm certainly not blaming the writers because that's very cheap to do. Because the same thing goes for directing. You know, there are certain scenes in the film that I think, well, I maybe should have talked to the actors a bit longer. And you can't blame the actors. You can only blame the director. So there, are, there is room for improvement. Well, I mean, hey, at least you admit it and you're not sitting there saying, oh, it's perfect. But uh, <laughs> to me, it, it is quite fucking perfect. It, it's it's yeah. a great, great film. And... Uh, I'm so sorry. I've I've mostly talked about that when you have this <laughs> illustrious career that we we should speak of on on your other. So, would, would, tell us about your other other film works because I know a lot of them are are. Is it Dutch? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So I, I you know that's that's uh, what can you say? You know, I was born in Holland, so I made my first six features before I was thirty three. I made the six features in Holland, and and and. Uh, a few of them were very successful and you know holland it's a small country it's a it's a european country so we're dependent in filmmaking there's no film industry in the in the good sense of the word it is a subsidized cottage hobby uh and that's very unkind but that's what it is that you can't really be a filmmaker and commercially live off it you depend on subsidy which means that in the time I started, there were probably three or four feature films made a year, uh, which also meant that if I made a film that was successful, my shot of getting a new film, new subsidy, was better. So it means that if I made a success, everybody hated me. Uh, because if I made a success, I, you know, I took away money from other people. That has become a lot better. There's more films made, the, uh, the, the people interact a lot better with each other. But when I was 33 and made six films and made a few big hits, uh, I thought, you know what, I can go on here till I'm 65 and get a subsidy and maybe I'm refused a subsidy. Then two years later, I will get one. I thought, well, you know what, uh, why not be nobody again? So I literally went to Hollywood with two suitcases. I, I knew one person who actually turned out to be not what he said he was. He, I, he had presented him as a high executive 
and I think he worked in the mail room. But uh, <laughs> so I didn't know anyone. I came there with two suits, one suit with, with bad looking clothes and one with the videotapes. And uh, I was nobody again, and it was fantastic. <laughs> And, and then it started, and it, I, I had given myself uh, three months. Jesus, I talk a lot about myself. Um, <laughs> that, that's what you're here to do, man. Right here for. I given myself three months, but but smart as I am, I still wrote a column for a Dutch daily newspaper, and that was a weekly column. And I had done that for many years, and I continued to do that. And the subject was. Young, ambitious uh, European filmmaker goes to Hollywood to be because he wants to be rich and famous, and everything goes wrong. You know, so I could write a weekly column, and I did a radio show about the same subject, also for a Dutch radio national station. So the friends I started to build up in uh, in Hollywood, I always use Hollywood, but it's of course Los Angeles. Uh, uh, they said, oh, you should do that for uh, for uh, the Santa Monica Public Radio Station. It's such a funny uh, radio show. And I, arrogant as I was, I said, well, you know, if I uh, make a radio show, I'll do it for national public radio. I don't do it for a local station. <laughs> so they said, you'll never get that. It's impossible. <laughs> That's embarrassing by now. Uh, so a few months later, I went to Washington because one or two of my Dutch films were shown there by the Dutch embassy in a festival or something. So I literally went to a telephone cell, which of course I could have done in LA also. But I went to a telephone cell in Washington and called the National Public Radio and, told, and got the Sunday morning edition on the line for whatever reason. And said, oh, I said, I make a comedy radio show about Hollywood. It's a, a European guy who wants to be rich and famous and everything goes wrong. Don't you think that could be fun for you? And be, because I had made Dutch one mostly in English, because there were a lot of English people that said, I'll send you a few of the items. So I made, as of then, I made radio shows for National Public Radio. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to say, that's really cool. And the stupid thing is I don't have it myself because I didn't have a radio. Sometimes I went to my car to listen to the radio when they broadcast on the Sunday morning edition with Susan Stamberg, you know. They were very kind people, very, very kind, good people. But the weird thing was the executives in Hollywood, when I told them I made these shows, they knew the show. They knew the show better than they knew my film because they didn't have time to watch a, a Dutch feature film with subtitles. That was too, you know, that took too much time. They'd have their assistants do that. But on Sunday morning, if they very often listen to a quality radio program like the Sunday morning edition, uh, and 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 the the, the radio uh, ideas were in there. So so that helped me also. I I don't know why we started with it. Oh yeah, that was about my career. That helped me to get in there. And then Miami Vice was the first offer I got. But it wasn't after three months, it was after a year. Uh, because things happened and things went wrong and you get offers and... But I just liked it. I liked the, I liked the place. I, I really adored living there. The weather is good. The car driving uh, was good. My first car, by the way, was a Volvo that where the gas tank leaked. 
So I was always afraid somebody would throw their cigarette butt <laughs> under my car. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that would be hey. pretty intense, actually. Right. Like, that's not something I would have actually thought of. <laughs> so, no. yeah, I'd, I'd be driving driving pretty fucking scared. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then, when, when, when you're cheap, because, of course, I didn't have a lot of money there. When you're cheap, you fix your leaking gas tank with a, pee, a bar of specific soap and you rub up against the cast <laughs> to seal the leak. That's, that's how you fix your own car. That's better than gum. Yeah, or I was thinking like duct tape or aluminum foil. <laughs> but, but after Miami Vice, because the weird thing is in Hollywood, everybody, uh, you meet everybody if you're a little bit lucky and have a good agent. And uh, they, they watch the film, or had their assistants watch the film and they all like it, but nobody will take a chance. A show like Miami Vice will take a shot with you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can talk for a whole evening about Miami Vice, by the way. My guest star was uh, James Brown, the godfather of soul. Yes. Who yes. I didn't know who that was. So I didn't know who that was. <laughs> so, so I can tell you extremely funny stories about that but uh that's another that's another story uh, we're gonna have to get you back first, on my first offer was highway to hell no i i oh. uh, i was offered highway to hell and it took ages and then it was on and it was off and it was on it was off and uh, ultimately we made the film and i was very disappointed with uh with highway to hell uh i didn't think it was good but then the writer brian helgeland who later won an Oscar with LA Confidential and started to direct like Night's Tale and all that sort of thing. He said, if you take your name off, uh, I'll um, put my name on because I think it's really a nice film. Oh, I I'll show you something. Just, I'm not running away. <laughs> <laughs> He's left the building. <laughs> And I think I, I lied. I actually do have more no, questions I'm not, about I'm this. I'm not sure if you can read this, but this is the official director's guild letter that Highway to Hell is now made by Alan Smithy. Ah. Huh. Because Alan Smithy is the, is the pseudonym that everybody uses who wants to take their name off. And when I received the letter, that was after months of negotiations between the lawyers and the, uh, the, the financiers, Hamdale and me and all that, when I received the letter, I burst out in tears and kept my name on. And it isn't as big a cult film as Drop That Thread, but it has become a cult film also. <laughs> it's That's a, awesome. so what the fuck does it? Oh, sorry. What, what, oh, no. <laughs> what, what the hell does a director know? Nothing. They're the worst <laughs> judges of their own material. They don't know anything. Spoken like a true director. So I totally lied. I have one last question about Drop Dead Fred. More so, last question. <laughs> more so what, whatever happened to the props, like the box, the Jack box that Fred was from? We, that one, I don't know. That one, I don't know. Um, I want it. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that would have been a good prop, that, that, yeah. you know, the jack-in-the-box. I still have, which is not that visible, I still have the butcher block that is in the kitchen of the apartment. Oh, nice. Um, That's cool. Uh, it's actually in the house in London. And, and I literally two weeks ago asked my ex, because I heard she wanted to get rid of it, 
I said, you know, that has sentimental value. Can I ship it over to Holland? So uh, I'm going to get it uh, again in my house. Awesome. And I, th- I somewhere I have a drop that Fred watch, but I wasn't in the movie. There was a merchandising thing. You know, very often what happens is that after the film is finished, literally the, literally the day after the film is finished, that crew members can buy props and clothes. Oh. They're usually more interested in the clothes than in the props. I didn't know and, that. That's cool. And, and, and so uh, I, I know, for instance, that the, the, that's not necessarily a prop, but the, the credit sequence, there were drawings made by a guy, uh, an animator, and he loved it so much he made drawings. And then I, for whatever reason, had gotten these drawings, the original. And at a certain point, there was a, a fundraiser at the Director's Guild, and I donated them to the Director's Guild. So who knows who has these now? But uh, I think some of the props, probably some of the crew members might, may have. Them. Hmm. Damn. Interesting. I got to find. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, like, to do some soul searching and, and look for this box. we're gonna get we're gonna get it back um so have you been working on a film recently uh well the 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 essential word in your question is recently Uh, well i i asked because there there's one i i seen and it says post-production now so i don't know which one is that the the my friend Anne frank Yes, I am um, uh, 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 legally. I can't say a word about it. Okay, okay, that's it's fine. Very, I, I was originally like the director, and I'm not anymore. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say it looked great, <laughs> but not you anymore. I joked about that, but <laughs> and and I can, of course, not if you ask a question or shake my head or something. <laughs> I don't think the contract says I, I can't shake my head, but <laughs> that's okay. We, we won't get you into any legal trouble. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> I got so so since you've uh, directed and it never happened to me before. I can only say that. But uh... okay. Um, so since you've directed in like overseas and in the states, is there any differences between the two, or any like challenges you face? Yeah, there, there are differences. There, there, there are differences and many similarities. For instance, like the crews are pretty much the same everywhere. You have talented people in America, many talented people, by the way. You have talented people in South Africa and Germany, everywhere. Mm-hmm. And of course, if your pool is bigger, you have a shot of getting more talented people. But that's just a numbers question. The, the differences are a little bit more in the approach. America has more of a industry approach you know it's better regulated mm-hmm. and the regulations can tie you up a little bit which was definitely the case in the past but that's a really long time ago in in england where the unions were so strict that the that the charm of filmmaking was lost i suppose that was true in hollywood also but that was probably before my time but there are some uh, regulations like you know you when whenever you go over a certain amount of time you get meal penalties whenever you do this then that whenever you do this you have to have so many hours of rest between the finish of the shoot many of these rules are very uh helpful because they they protect you to some degree Uh, sometimes the rules are a little bit 
constraining you and and you lose the 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 the, the charm of the filmmaking but where the real difference is 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 actually mostly in the mentality and and that expresses itself mostly in the actors actually that uh, for instance the actors in i'm generalizing a little bit but that's impossible not to do mm. but uh in general the actors in europe have the feeling that they have to protect the integrity of the story particularly when it's uh, based on a novel or something so they okay. find themselves to be the gatekeepers of the quality and the integrity of what you're doing in america the actors are far more busy with protecting the image of themselves and um i won't name names but uh in drop that threat when i you know being european i sometimes found an angle interesting for whatever reason but there were also angles like from low and there were actors who did not want to do that and they didn't want to do it because they didn't think it was flattering for them and that's probably true you know a low angle is not always flattering for for any actor but specifically not for women and and i never thought about the reason that people could put their own image above the importance of the story mm -hmm. um that would not quickly happen in europe but in europe they are less prepared than they are in america you have of course a, a bunch of brats but in general the <laughs> actors in america know their dialogue when they come on the set in europe it happens very often they say oh what's you know we doing oh let me read the dialogue oh yeah yeah give me five minutes to remember it <laughs> and i think you give me five minutes that's five minutes of my time you know yeah, uh, so, so there is a different but that's the difference ultimately when you think about it, it's different in social attitude you know mm -hmm. the, the the social awareness in europe is different than the social awareness in america that is not saying that one is better than the other but it, it, there is a difference okay uh, I, I made a film in south africa and there was for instance like no organization whatsoever you went to a street and we had a scene in the script like a scene in a in a shopping mall in a clothing shop and he literally went to a to a shopping mall and you knocked well you you walked in in, a, in and you said can we film here you know and if they didn't if they said no you went to the next one till you found one so you did the location search while you were shooting that's unthinkable and i was like completely flabbergasted i never <laughs> thought that i i thought that is like something that is from 30 years ago or something uh and, and whenever you needed an extra it's a crew member you know th that sort of thing so that but that that also was because their mentality was that you know you had to all do everything at the same time uh it wasn't restricted and in germany i made a few tv movies in germany and they were extremely uh well they did everything i said if i had said now uh, the, the whole crew has to sit on the roof they would do it also you know they were so obliging that it was a little bit scary you know you started to think yeah no wonder that they all marched in the second world war because they did everything they were told <laughs> there's not many german listeners are there <laughs> i mean not yet not yet <laughs> <laughs> I get into big problems, but but in all fairness, the, the Germans were very open to me. You know, they they mm -hmm. accepted foreign directors. 
and, and America is very open. England, where I lived, God damn it, for uh, 12 years, I've lived there for 12 years. I barely ever worked there. When I left England, then I made a few films there because <laughs> I brought money to make the films. And then, you know, you can come in there. But the British are very kind. They're very polite. And they will always stick to, their, to the people they know, which are, you know, did you go to the same university? I have two British sons and one went to Oxford. So I think he has a better shot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> fair enough. Right? And that, that thing does not, that is not true in America, for instance. America, really, you have to have talent and America can be very tough. But everybody gets a shot, uh, no, within certain limits, eh? uh, but everybody gets a shot and, and it doesn't matter what your background is. If you deliver what the, the financiers want, you get another shot. If you don't deliver, then it doesn't matter how good you are and where you come from, you can, you know, you basically your God. So America has a fairness, which I admired. It's very tough, by the way. You're not allowed on many mistakes. Right. But, uh, but at the same token, there is no, no uh, prejudgment. Right. So your, uh, your movie, The Deadly Virtues, Love, Honor, Obey, that, uh, that looked like there was a lot of sexual craziness going on in the trailer. I'm not really sure what was happening, <laughs> but... <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's, it's a soft reflection of the movie, the trailer. yeah. Um, so what is that one about exactly? Well, it, it is uh, the, the story behind it is very uh, uh, there's always nice stories, but I had made a film in Holland, uh, called The Bombardment, The Blitz, sometimes called, which was about a bombing of Rotterdam in 1940. And uh, that was a film I don't think I've ever, within Holland, never, never ever had so much publicity as with that film because the leading actor was a, quite a well-known singer. And the film was, I don't think, I mean, Drop That Fred didn't have great reviews, but they were, you know, uh, lukewarm or whatever. I don't think I've ever had worse reviews than for that film. No, I don't read the reviews anymore. I don't do that since my second movie. But your friends will tell you. That's why you have friends for, you know. They will tell you, don't read that paper. They always say it's shit. <laughs> oh, no. So you know pretty much what's that. But then I, w I went to visit, uh, two weeks after the premiere, I went to visit my sons in London. And a good friend of mine, Elliot, uh, uh, Elliot called me, um, Elliot Grove from Raindance, uh, Raindance Festival in London called me, I said, I have this script and I don't know what to do with it. I said, ah, oh, you know, uh, give it to me, I read it. And I read it and I thought it was brilliant. It was uh, uh, basically a genre film where a couple uh, is in a house and gets uh, a guy breaks in and terrorizes them. But it had such a deeper layer to it that I thought it was brilliant. I said, Elliot, you know, you can get Cronenberg for this film or you can get such and such. The only thing is then it's going to be a film of five million and it's going to take you two or three years to get it made. And Elliot said, well, we have something like a little bit less than a hundred thousand pounds. And I said, Elliot, actually, you can make the film for that. You can't have a great crew. You can't have this. You can't have that. You can't have famous actors, but you can make a film. And 
as I just came off a film where I was thought I'll never make a film in my life again after these uh, reviews. They will never give me money and ever again. I just did it. You know, uh, three months later, we just made a film for no money, which is the best cure you can have. If you have had a very bad experience, the best thing you can do is not soak, not talk about it, not criticize the critics, but make another film. Yeah. Um, it's good. Knock down, get back up. I feel like I'm not every movie that gets bad reviews from critics, I feel like I like those movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like those are the uh, best movies. <laughs> this might sound like like weird, but I don't necessarily blame the critics and I don't necessarily think they're wrong. They might have an opinion that is true for them at that moment and mm -hmm. for their social group. But films are 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 films are to be seen with an audience and, right. and with the right audience. And the critics should right for their audience, which is not necessarily the audience for that movie. But it is it is a, a moment in time. It is their opinion for a moment in time. And Drop That Threat is the best example. That film has evolved. The film hasn't changed. You know, the film is still the same. Right. But the thinking about what happens in the film has changed. And therefore, the film has gotten a new appreciation. Yeah. And that, uh, uh, that can happen. So. I don't. I don't like it, of course, if if they don't like the movies, because I'm vain enough, you know, to like the praise. But I'm not dependent on it. You make a film for your audience, and you hope the audience will like it. And it's and you got it's a tough life. I always feel, I honest to God, I feel that if you're a very well balanced person, and you know, very much in harmony with yourself and your life, you're definitely not a film director. <laughs> I thought, thought you were gonna have a nice virtue or something for us there. Yeah, <laughs> you're not a film director. <laughs> Dang it! Uh, that's awesome. So, are, are, are there are there any future plans for any more projects? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm uh, I'm busy with a with a small project here in Holland, which I would love to do actually English language because not because it would work better in English but your gateway to the world is better it is it's a it's a bit of a prejudice but it's still true that a film that is uh, not english language made so with, with basically english speaking actors has a tougher time to get seen in the world no drop that threat could have been made made in holland we wouldn't have brick mail but suppose you had an actor like that and, and the actor was just as good the film would not have been seen by the amount of people that saw the film now just because New Line distributed it through partially through Universal, that film was shown in whatever, 50, 60 countries. And uh, that is still true. It is, it is a horrible thing. But you know, how many times do you, even in New York or, or San Francisco, how many times do you still see a French film? Now, France is a big country or an Italian film. It barely happens. So if it's not an English language film, you have an, an upfront, uphill middle. Battle. So having said that, uh, I'm busy with a, with a small film, uh, uh, which I hope to make here in Holland next year. God knows if it's, if it's going to happen. And I'm producing a stop motion film. And the stop motion film is about Nosferatu. Nosferatu is the classic nice. Murnau mm -hmm. film, expressionistic, silent era. But Murnau made the very first vampire movie and uh based on the bram stoker story that was the very yeah. so we're doing uh you can't call it a remake but it is a variation of the 
of Nosferatu, where the, the, the woman, the original Nosferatu, is the damsel in distress and is basically the victim. And we, you know, change of times, we made her the hero. She has to fight the vampire. But it is in stop motion. You know, the, the whole ex expressionism of the 20s uh, of last century is called in stop motion. That works perfectly. And I became the producer uh, because I don't really have a strong tie to animation, but the director uh, approached me two years ago and I thought I was such a great man and such a, a nice person. I think it's, he's much nicer than I am. And I thought, oh, I can, uh, you know, maybe I can improve a little bit by working together with him. <laughs> <laughs> so there are still things, but, but it's, it, you, you become more selective because you know that things take a lot of time. Uh, and uh, in the past, I had always like five, six things at the same time, and then you shoot with hail, and what hits is the one. And now you become a little bit more selective because the, the, the time you otherwise would spend on uh, different projects, while you know that some of them won't work, you now say, well, I'm going to concentrate me on the ones that I really think are, are fun to do. And it's, the fun is mostly in the other people. Uh, and the time that you now create, you spend on, 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 on your social life, which when you're young and ambitious, you tend not to do that. Yeah, yeah, I definitely understand that, and and definitely uh, needing to to be picky with what you choose because it that is a serious time investment, and mm -hmm. basically you gotta like get into like a miniature marriage with a bunch of people, <laughs> right? <laughs> the, the crew, well, the actors. There's a weird truth that, that that because you said you have to be picky, and that's true, but at the same time. Uh, sometimes you don't know. You know, I, I, I once made a German TV movie which I didn't want to do because I thought TV was horrible and all that sort of thing. But I, you know, I, I, I done some. Uh, I, I was through with my money. I, I lived too expensive uh, in a too big a house, and I had to do something for money, which I barely ever have done in my life. I never made commercials, for instance, and that sort of thing. Now I would like to make commercial. I want to sell out, but nobody wants to buy anymore. <laughs> So, uh, uh, but, but I did a, a, a TV movie and I hate it, but I hated myself for doing it you know, because I thought it was low and it wasn't right and it wasn't a good script. So I so much, I, I think I was very obnoxious and unpleasant. And uh, I changed everything because I oh, this is shit and this is not good and uh, this and this and that and uh, oh, uh, and I, 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 you know, if you fire me, fine, you know, that, <laughs> and it turned out to be one of the best films I made nice. because I didn't care, you know, you and sometimes if you don't care, it helps you enormously. Hmm. And so that, that, that's true of the other way around. Sometimes if you care a lot, that's not always the best, you know, because you become vulnerable. Yeah, you, you have to have that uh, that balance. There's always a time and place to, to care, not care, and got to evenly distribute it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And what a wisdom, man. <laughs> I, we're not fully mindless. Um, <laughs> Just what I want to be. <laughs> I, I got to say, it, it is absolutely awesome to have you. And, and big shout out to uh, Randy Edelman for getting us in contact with you as well. Yeah, yeah. we appreciate it. Put, putting a good word in there. Uh, Randy is a great man. He's absolutely fantastic. Wait, we had a blast talking to him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, <laughs> he is awesome people. Um, and great musician. I mean... Yeah. 
re-listening to uh the like soundtrack for drop dead fred like the little music that goes on in the background is just it's like cool i talked to that guy that did that <laughs> and now i can say i talked to the guy that directed this <laughs> and uh i know i know you don't drink and i and i hope you uh will still appreciate this anyway we're gonna make a drinking game out of this so anytime <laughs> <laughs> Anytime Rick happens to say "mega bitch" or "snot face," we're gonna yeah. drink. We're gonna drink. Oh, <laughs> Probably yeah, get know, alcohol. You know where the, where the mega bitch is, oh, I hear you have to finish, but the mega bitches come from the fact that we uh, uh, we we only were allowed to say "mega bitch" twice, and that's why the rest changed in "mega beast." Uh, <laughs> it was right. a censorship thing. That's <laughs> so that so you won't get drunk because there's only two mega bitches, I think. Man, we'll if all the mega we'll in there that that will, that were planned, you would be drunk by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. And, and I know he, he does say snot face quite often. So yeah, that yeah, that's true. He says snot. I think face. we'll be all right. We'll, we'll get drunk. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> But uh, it, it was such an honor to have you. Thank you so much for for coming on here and yeah, getting to absolutely. talk with us. And I, we Thank definitely you. look forward to hopefully more American movies. Like I hope yeah. so. at least you yeah. know something something here like a little more a little more updated uh, Drop Dead Fred. You know we could do a Drop Dead Fr- Josh or something. Drop yeah, Dead yeah, Dakota. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm in it. I'm all for so, it. Um, no, well, it, it was a pleasure. I hope your uh, viewers, uh, listeners, will like it, and sure. uh, I think they will. And, and take the good things out of it. Yeah, I was, do we'll, something we'll, great with it. We'll have to try to get you back on so that we could talk more. Since there's so much more that we can talk about. <laughs> oh yeah, then I can still tell you my James Brown stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. See, we got we got lots. We'll have to get you back on for sure. Absolutely. Well, again, man, it was a pleasure. And uh, before I let you go, is there any words of wisdom you would like to uh, throw out there to the listeners? Oh, God. I did. Oh, I, oh, if I had prepared for it, I would have come up with a wisdom. But I <laughs> Put you on the spot. <laughs> be nice for the people that are nice to you. That is always a good thing. It is. Short, sweet, and simple. I like it. Yeah, you can't beat that one. <laughs> so, well, folks. That's it. Stay mindless. Stay mindless, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Mindless Morning Show. We appreciate you picking us out of the many great podcasts out there. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit that little bell to get notified whenever we release a new episode or bonus content. Now go enjoy the rest of your mindless day.